Welcome into another edition of the WISports.net podcast. I'm Travis Wilson, General Manager at WSN, and your host for the WSN podcast. We have a busy show today, so we're going to get right into some things. And, and just to, uh, to tease a little bit what we're going to be talking about today, uh, first of all, uh, we'll talk about the study that came out last week from the University of Wisconsin that, uh, that took a look at trying to provide some actual data in the conversation about high school sports being played during this time period and, and whether high school sports contributes to the spread of COVID-19, to, to uh, increased transmission rates, etc. Uh, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, a little bit more, and we will talk to Dr. Andrew Watson, who was the, uh, the author of that study, the, the publisher of that study, uh, the team physician, a, a team physician at the University of Wisconsin in their athletic department, also a member of the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation, and uh, some great insight uh, from Dr. Watson on what went into this study, what the results were, what it should mean going forward. Um, just uh, really important information, as, as we'll talk about a little bit later. A couple things I do want to highlight before we get into that discussion, though. First of all, uh, last weekend was the WFCA Fall Combine down at uh, Next Level in Waukesha. Great opportunity for uh, almost 200 kids to get out and, and get some football activity in. Uh, all these kids had, had had their seasons canceled this fall and moved to the spring, and, and they were chomping at the bit to get out there and uh, to do some things and, and show their stuff and really some outstanding performances that were put, out, uh, put up there uh, you can check it out at wisports.net or, or uh, WFCA uh, website and uh, see some of the top performers. Really, uh, you know, again, some outstanding marks that were that were put up there. Uh, big thank you to Tony Biolo, Mark Kromenacker, uh, organizers of the event on the WFCA side, Brad Arnett and his group at Next Level, uh, the the combine workers. Uh, many of them or most of them WFCA members and coaches that went down and helped out. Uh, Brianne Kromenacher, the, the wife of Mark Kromenacher, uh, handled the registration table. And uh, really, uh, big thanks to everybody involved. Unfortunately, as I mentioned on Twitter, I was, uh, like many players this year, caught up in contact tracing and not able to attend that event. But I'm out now. I'm really looking forward to getting into a game this week and, uh, and getting out of the house <laughs> for the first time in, uh, in a little while here. But uh, the WFCA Combine, again, you can check out all those results on WSN. Some WSN news uh, that, that we announced this week. Uh, with Sports.net is joining VNN Sports. We've been acquired by VNN from Sports Engine. Sports Engine been our, had been our home for uh, eight years, a little over eight years. Uh, since we had joined in 2012, and it had really been uh, you know a, an enjoyable ride at Sports Engine. Uh, we were a part of during that time period incredible growth for the company. Uh, changed names a couple times. Uh, ended up being acquired by NBC Sports and uh, Comcast, and uh, you know we had enjoyed our time there. But we're looking forward to the opportunities that it's going to to bring to us at VNN, uh, a company that. Uh, you know, is devoted to the high school market. The, the fastest growing uh, digital network for high schools, uh, athletic departments um, do a great job providing tools for athletic directors and, and schools to use at the high school level to, uh, to communicate and, and reach their audiences. And, you know, some, some exciting opportunities that's going to present for integration 
uh, moving forward and uh, renewed focus on, on what we're looking at doing and possibly some expansion opportunities uh, to, to see if we can test out our business model in other areas. Uh, that's a little bit farther down the road. But uh, in the meantime, it's not going to relate to a lot of significant changes right away on WSN. We're going to continue to run Wisconsin Sports Network as we have for, for many, many years. Our staff is all coming over. Uh, Mark Miller, Norbert Durst, Colton Wilson, myself, all, uh, all coming over. Uh, our website is not going to change for the foreseeable future. We will stay on the Sports Engine platform for a while. Uh, there is a ton of information and a ton of data in the history of our website that uh, if, if or when someday we do go to a different platform, it would be a significant undertaking and something that uh, couldn't really be done in, in the short term here. Uh, so nothing's going to change for you as a, a reader, as a user of WSN for quite a while. You're, you're still going to see, you know, the, the look and feel is going to be the same. The functionality is going to be the same. Your WSN Extra account is going to be the same. Your, your coach account, if, if you're a coach that logs in to enter information, is going to be the same. None of that's going to change uh, for, for quite a while. Um, so we don't anticipate any disruptions or interruptions in what we're looking at doing uh, from, a, from a business or coverage standpoint. Um, but again, looking forward to the opportunities that will uh, be available for us at VNN. So let's get into, though, the, the primary focus of today's podcast, and that's going to be, again, that study that came out from the University of Wisconsin, their School of Medicine and Public Health. And, you know, we put it right in the, in the opening paragraph of our article uh, of this groundbreaking study, that the conclusion from this study Participation in sports is not associated with increased risk of COVID-19 among Wisconsin high school student-athletes. That's a pretty interesting conclusion to make. It's, a, I think, a very compelling conclusion to come out of this study as you look over the data, as the researchers poured over all the information. And let's just kind of run through the basics of this study. You, you probably saw it on our site. It, it gained a lot of attention. Very, very popular article. It got picked up nationally, the, the story itself. Um, I was on a, a radio interview in New Mexico uh, where they were looking for some more information because their uh, high school sports are, are shut down for the entire fall, one of only four, sport, uh, four states in the country where they're not doing anything this fall. And... Uh, so the, the nuts and bolts of it, the, they, the, the researchers in the study worked with the Wisconsin Interscholastic Athletic Association, the WIAA, to collect data from 207 schools. It was an opt-in, an, an optional thing, uh, but that represented more than 30,000 student-athletes. So this is not a small sample. This is 30,000 student-athletes that they looked at in the month of uh, September when COVID cases were increasing throughout the state. This encompassed uh, about six, over 16,000 practice sessions, 4,000 games and contests, uh, again, all in the month of September. What they found is that uh, out of those 30,000 student-athletes, there were 271 cases of COVID-19 identified. The case rate would be 901 per 100,000, and they compared this with the overall case rate for all adolescents, 14 to 17-year-olds in Wisconsin. The case rate for an average 14 to 17-year-old is over 1,000 per 100,000, uh, 1,035 to be exact. They also found uh, that the incidence rate, which looks at um, 
you know, the, the, the case rate deals with the number of people. The incidence rate deals with the number of interactions. Uh, the incidence rate was lower for, uh, for high school athletes than it was for the general population slightly. Um, but if you look at it statistically, you know, basically saying there's no difference for student athletes, uh, you know, COVID risk transmission uh, than there is for a regular student. And that was very interesting to see. Um, of those 271 reported cases, no hospitalizations or deaths, which is uh, outstanding, obviously. They were able to trace back 209 of those 271 positive cases to a known source, and only one was attributed to a sports contact. Most were attributed to household contact. Uh, a lot of them were con contributed to a community contact, a few of them to uh, school contact. But, uh, you know, that's, that's encouraging information. And I know it's kind of uh, ironic or, or, or different or interesting, you know, the juxtaposition of, of talking about this study right now and what is going on at the University of Wisconsin uh, in their football program, where they're dealing with a little bit of an outbreak there and obviously have had to cancel this week's game. Uh, Graham Mertz, Paul Christ, reportedly Chase Wolf, all testing positive for COVID-19. I think the, the number they had was 12 total positive cases within their program, which includes all players, coaches, staff members. Um, and they, uh, they chose to shut down. They weren't quite, uh, 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 reportedly, they weren't quite at the threshold that the Big Ten has where you have to pause, but they decided to pause voluntarily and, uh, you know, get, get things under control a little bit. So I, I understand that, you know, the, the juxtaposition of that versus this study that comes out. But again, this study isn't saying that nobody's getting infected. This study isn't saying that, you know, and it doesn't look at college sports either, which are a different dynamic. Uh, college athletes are uh, much more involved and in, in have a lot more contact with each other than, than high school athletes would. Um, the, the time that they put in in, in uh, weights and in meetings and meals together and many of them live together and, and all those different things add up to a situation where you, you would expect, I think, more opportunity for spread within a program at the college level than you would at the high school level. So it's, it's a little bit of apples and oranges to some extent, um, but it, you know, it's, it's not um, unimportant, obviously. And, and the, the thing that you, know, you have to understand about this study from the, from the high school perspective as well is nobody is saying that high, this, this means high school sports are safe. No one is saying that. The, uh, Dr. Watson, you'll hear him talk about that uh, a little bit later, but that is not what this study says. What this study says is that your exposure is no different being a student athlete than it is being a regular person. And, and it's perhaps not surprising, um, you know, for a few reasons. Number one, uh, I think we have seen uh, a lot of uh, anecdotal information coming out from coaches and, and parents and, and players themselves and, and some of the, the folks that we talk to, that high school athletes understand that they're in a very, uh, you know, vulnerable position where they could have everything taken away very quickly. Their season could get shut down tomorrow or today. And they are taking the steps to make sure that they can have a season. They understand that, you know what, if I if I go out and I'm uh, 
if I go to the mall with 20 of my friends or if I go to a party or if I, you know, whatever, I'm potentially going to put my season at risk. And they're making conscious choices, many of them, to reduce their outside exposure and, and, you know, give up some of those things that come with being a teenager so that they can have a season in their, uh, in their athletics. Um, the study did show and, and did ask and, and did find that every school in the study has a formal plan in place for mitigation opportunity or for mitigation uh, to try to prevent spread. And, and that could be a number of different things. That could be masks for, um, for all coaches and staff. It could be masks for players off the playing field. It could be social distancing off the, off the playing field, um, cleaning, different things like that. I think there was 11 different uh, things that they had as a checklist of, of what schools were doing. Again, every school had a plan. Uh, there was also, uh, you know, excellent protocols and guidelines in place from the WIAA that were developed in conjunction with the uh, State Department of Health, with the uh, State Department of Public Instruction, uh, all those things put in place to try to keep things, uh, you know, safer, to reduce the exposure, to reduce the risk. And it shows that, you know, those things seem to be working. And it, it does seem to show that if you do things the right way, you, you have a good shot to have a season. That's not saying that there won't be interruptions, there won't be issues, but it can be done. And, and we found that this fall, obviously. Yes, there have been games postponed, canceled, um, but teams are finding a way and, and they're doing the things that are necessary to, uh, to have a season. These findings uh, from this study uh, are, are very similar to another study that this, this same group had done with a uh, elite youth soccer league a little bit earlier in the summer um, that showed, you know, essentially the same kind of thing that, um, you know, the incidence rate, the case rate were, were not different from your average, uh, you know, pl- uh, person of that age. Uh, both of these studies found that uh, it, you know, it started to line up with similar findings in, in other literature that's out there that the severity of COVID-19 is less in children. Uh, again, no reported hospitalizations or deaths in this study uh, for, in the state of Wisconsin among 30,000 high school athletes with 200, excuse me, 271 positive cases. So again, I, I think it's encouraging information. It certainly does need further study, and you'll hear Dr. Watson talk about what next steps are for this, um, and, and you'll hear him talk about what, you know, how schools should use this information. There is a lot of concern as we move from the fall sports season where most sports are outside, and many of them distanced, to the winter sports season where sports are inside, where they are significantly less distanced, um, you know, how much does this information apply to that, if any? That's, I, I think, a big question. And, and that's why Dr. Watson will explain how they plan on expanding and, and continuing this study, not only here in Wisconsin, but elsewhere. We're very happy to bring on our next guest to provide some additional context and information around a uh, very interesting study that was published last week that garnered a lot of attention, not only here in Wisconsin, when we published it on wisports.net, but around the country. I saw the, the story picked up at a number of outlets around, uh, around the country. I, I got a call from a news, uh, excuse me, a radio station in, in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
looking for more information and some comments. So uh, again, really uh, interesting information that came out as we talk to now Dr. Drew Watson, a uh, team physician for the University of Wisconsin and a member of the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation in the uh, School of Public Health and School of Medicine at Univers uh, University of Wisconsin. Dr. Watson, uh, appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us a little bit more about this today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Travis. Let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, if we could, and, and just talk us through what was the impetus for this study, kind of where the, the idea and in, in the context came from. And uh, also a little bit, if you, if you could just kind of walk us through, you know, the, the logistics of, of what went into making the study possible. Sure. So really, this all kind of started back in the spring, as we all experienced COVID-19 really came on us very quickly. And here in Wisconsin, schools closed, sports were canceled. Um, and to give credit where it's due, one of the collaborators I have here at the University of Wisconsin, Tim McGuire, had the foresight to distribute a survey throughout the country to try and gauge the physical activity and mental health levels among high school athletes. Um, we got information back from over 13,000 uh, athletes to, to really kind of document the, the physical activity and mental health conditions that they were experiencing. But because we had been doing similar research here in Wisconsin, we were also able to compare data from about 5,000 athletes historically to about 3,000 athletes that were included in that data collection in May. And so we were able to look a little more directly at the changes in physical activity levels and mental health from before COVID-19 to the spring following the cancellation of school and sports. And we found not too surprisingly that physical activity levels had decreased by half. There just simply weren't the same sorts of opportunities that were able to be replicated within the restrictions that we had. But I think most importantly, what we identified was that there were real uh, dramatic increase in increases in some mental health issues. Uh, whereas normally, historically, we've found that the proportion of high school athletes that report moderate to severe depression symptoms generally is less than about 10%. But when we asked again in May, we found that this had risen to 33%. So one in three of our athletes were reporting the sort of depressive symptoms that you might normally refer on for evaluation and treatment by a healthcare provider. One in four were uh, reporting moderate to severe anxiety. So I think we were really struck by how impactful these restrictions were on athletes in terms of their mental health largely presumably as a function of not only concern about the virus, but also the loss of social social connections and the threats to their, the portion of their identity that they form around being an athlete. Um, but obviously COVID-19 is, is continuing to spread. It's a particularly dangerous disease. And so what we wanted to identify was whether participation in athletics uh, in an effort to try and restore some of the physical and mental health benefits would be associated with an increased risk of COVID-19 among our young athletes. So we developed an initial pilot survey, if you will, in collaboration with our uh, state athletic association. So they helped us distribute a survey to all of the high schools in Wisconsin that was completed by the athletic directors on behalf of their uh, entire school. So what we got back was um, information from just over 200 schools about the sports they had restarted, the number of athletes, the number of COVID cases, and where those cases had been 
uh, attributed to in terms of the source or the exposure that was felt to be responsible. So really what we were trying to do was kind of fill in both sides of this of this balancing effort. You know, if we do think that restriction of activities has certain downstream consequences, do we think that reinitiation of those activities in, incorporates a, an increased risk of COVID-19 where you might consider them you know, justified or, or necessary despite their downstream consequences? As you uh, got the information in and, and as it uh, became published, um, was there anything surprising that you found from the data or, or did it line up with maybe what you had thought or some initial uh, observations had been? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure what I expected out of it. I don't think I would have been too surprised in, in either direction. I mean, I, I spend a fair amount of my free time on, on soccer fields, uh, you know, and I have for, for decades um, and, and my experience so far in my little little world of soccer is that uh, we haven't seen a whole lot of cases. The cases that we have seem to be relatively mild in children, um, but it's very hard to extrapolate that to larger populations, particularly in the upper Midwest here, where we do see you know, rises in COVID-19 incidents and, and continued increases in, in cases. And uh, we really wanted to try and make sure that what we weren't doing was was unfairly extrapolating or making assumptions about what was going on in sports. So we attempted to measure it more directly. And really, I think what we, what we found was at least in terms of the data that was returned to us, we didn't find any indication that being an athlete in Wisconsin had an increased risk of COVID-19 compared to simply being an adolescent in Wisconsin. So in other words, we looked at the the number of cases and the incidence rate among our athletes during that month of September and compared it to the incidence rate that was reported by uh, the Wisconsin Department of, uh, or the Wisconsin DHS. Uh, and we really didn't see that, that being an athlete appeared to incorporate a higher incidence of COVID-19 compared to simply being a high school age kid in Wisconsin at the time. And this was a very similar study that you had conducted, uh, I believe it was around the same time or shortly uh, before this study, uh, involved in youth soccer um, and kind of found some similar results. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So this summer, right towards the end of the summer, we uh, collaborated with the ECNL or the Elite Clubs National League to distribute a similar survey to their membership they represent uh, clubs throughout the country. And so we got data back from 124, um, almost all of who had reinitiated soccer in some form or another. And we found that, <clears throat> that the incidence of COVID-19 within those groups, similarly, you know, really wasn't higher than what had been reported for children in general by the American Academy of Pediatrics during that same time frame. So again, it, it sort of seemed to suggest that during the summer, being a soccer player didn't incorporate an increased risk of contracting COVID-19 compared to just being a kid in the U.S. We're talking with Dr. Andrew Watson from the University of Wisconsin about the uh, amazing and, and very interesting study that came out last week, painting a, a more clear picture of the role that high school sports plays in transmission of, uh, of COVID-19. Um, are you aware uh, of any other studies similar 
that are looking at uh, this in, in other areas of the state or, or excuse me, other areas of the country or um, anything else similar that's, that's ongoing or maybe has been published already? Most of most of what I've seen so far has largely been uh, case reports. There have been there has been information, you know, from public health agencies that has evaluated different outbreaks that seem to be associated with sport contacts. I mean, our our real target in this has has primarily been young athletes, um, and to my knowledge, there I haven't seen any other efforts to try and quantify the COVID nineteen incidents among that group in general. I will say that we've expanded that initial club soccer studies so that we are now collecting data nationally from a number of different uh, club sports. And we will also be expanding this Wisconsin study to include the state high school associations from across the country in the next few weeks. So my hope is that while these are kind of initial views of, of relatively narrow populations that will be able to replicate this and, and evaluate the, the findings that we see in, in much broader populations that perhaps allow us to be a little bit more able to generalize what we find. One of the interesting parts of the study was that uh, no sport, no, no particular fall sport, which includes you know, more distant sports like tennis and cross country and, and golf, but also contact sports like football and, and soccer and, and to some extent volleyball. Um, there was no, none of those sports that actually had a higher incidence rate or case rate than the average adolescent in the state. Um, one of the, the questions that many people have had is what, what we could extrapolate this information looking at mostly outdoor sports, how we could extrapolate that and use it as schools start to determine what their plans are for winter sports, where sports like gymnastics and especially volleyball, or excuse me, basketball and wrestling are obviously indoors, closer contact, et cetera. Is, is there anything or what can we take from this study as we look at how it might apply to winter sports? I, I think that is such an important question. And I want to make sure that, uh, that I don't that I don't overreach or I don't speculate too much about what we've found because I'm not sure that the data that we collected in the month of September from the sports that we did really can extrapolate into other contexts. I think that there are a lot of reasons to think that, you know, different sports are going to incur different degrees of transmission risk simply as a function of the type of activity, the context in which it's played. Uh, and I, and I hope that what we'll be able to do within the relatively near future is speak more directly to this. We are going to be, again, collecting this information nationally about fall sports. And then our intention is to conduct it again in the winter so that we can collect information regarding indoor sports that have restarted. I mean, we have some indoor sports within this data collection. We did look at girls' volleyball, for example. Um, but it's very hard to take that and extrapolate it to say that the findings that we have there are going to be direct, exactly the same as what we might see in sports like basketball or hockey. I think we really need to, to measure these things in order to speak directly about them. My hope um, is that one of the major things that we can take away from this is that it seems like schools are very motivated to do the things that try to protect their athletes from the virus. So they, they're reporting you know, large numbers of risk reduction protocols in place to try and make the environment safe. My hope is that 
when those schools move into winter sports, if they do, that those are in place and they and they potentially reduce the risk. But I think we're just going to have to measure it directly, and hopefully that's something we'll be able to speak to in the relatively near future. You mentioned Dr. Tim McGuine uh, earlier, and, and he was a big part of that study on mental health that came out earlier this year. And he's also involved with the WIAA on their Sports Medical Advisory Committee. And, and he was a big part, and that group was a big part of, of developing the guidelines and protocols for the WIAA uh, for the fall sports that have been played and for the winter sports that will be played. As you looked over the, the responses from schools about what their plans, uh, their mitigation plans included, um, you know, for the most part, does it seem like schools have the right plans in place and the right steps are being taken to reduce the exposure? I, I mean, I, it certainly looks like the overwhelming majority of them are endorsing the sort of practices that you would normally recommend to reduce the risk of spread. Um, it's going to vary from, from school to school, but it, we specifically asked about 11 different practices, um, some of which are redundant, and you wouldn't expect schools to necessarily do both. You know, for, We asked both about temperature checks at home and then temperature checks on site, and I think it would be surprising to find that a lot of places did both. But of those, the, the kind of average, if you will, was about eight. So we're seeing a lot of use of risk reduction protocols from from the schools that responded to our survey you know to the extent that nearly 95 percent are endorsing increased facility uh disinfection you know 90 percent are endorsing player and staff symptom monitoring face mask use among staff is nearly a hundred percent so I, I think it's i think that suggests that that organizations are very motivated to do what they can to reduce the risk and I think it's important that we contextualize the data that we present that all we're talking about is the COVID incidents within that context. So among schools that do appear to be utilizing a large number of risk reduction protocols, I can't speak to it directly, but my guess would be that if schools were not doing these, we would see a much higher incidence of COVID-19. And so I think one of the take-homes from this is that we can encourage that you know, people aren't just sort of returning to sport without any without any deliberation or thought about how to reduce the risk. It really does seem that they're they're embracing the recommendations that are being made and utilizing them to try and keep young athletes safe. What has been the response, uh, both from the the medical community and uh, and maybe just folks that have been contacting you one way or another? This is obviously a, an issue that brings a lot of uh, passionate responses. Um, what, what kind of response have you get have you gotten since this study was published last week? Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, this is this is a relatively contentious issue, and I think as many things unfortunately have, will sometimes sort of get uh, layered into you know, political arguments or or attempts to try and contextualize it in ways that it that it may or may not speak to. I think the 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 overwhelming response has been people being grateful that we're trying to insert data into a conversation where a lot of the time there just isn't very much available, that in many contexts, we're trying to make decisions about youth sports, extrapolating data from different contexts where it may not be applicable. And so I think people are appreciative of the fact that we're at least trying to inform these discussions. Um, and the other, I think, consistent message is, is that 
people are really hoping that we'll be able to replicate these in other areas. I think we have to be very careful about generalizing information from the month of September among high school athletes in the state of Wisconsin to other times, populations, or, or locations. So I think our efforts to expand this on a national level for both club and high school sports, uh, I think is, is another element that people are really looking forward to. I don't know if you've been contacted by any schools or athletic directors or superintendents, um, you know, asking about your thoughts. But if if somebody in that role did contact you and say, you know, what what should we use? How should we use this information? What what should we be doing with it? What should we, um, you know, be be looking at as we are considering return to play? What what kind of response would you have for those folks? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's very hard. It, you, you can't necessarily generalize anything to a variety of contexts because there are so many variables that potentially impact the, the transmission of COVID-19 within within a, in any group. I think my my big take-home message is for any you know group that we're looking to reinitiate participation in a sport is one ensure that it is accommodated by the local guidelines and restrictions and and not in defiance of those. I think that would be really inappropriate. I also would make sure that they develop a, a coherent and deliberate plan to reduce the risk among their athletes to develop a reporting mechanism so that they can identify cases as well as the potential sources to have very concrete uh, and well laid out return to play protocols and what to do for athletes if they become symptomatic. I think these are all the pieces that potentially help reduce the risk. And then I would just encourage them to really be mindful of what's going on within their program. If they're starting to see increases in cases, then they may need to take additional steps to reduce the transmission. Um, But I think the most important things that we can help organizations do to reduce the risk is, is really prioritize the sort of risk reduction protocols that you know, we and others have been promoting throughout. And then the other piece that I think is really important and we can't directly speak to is we're talking really just about COVID cases within young athletes. There are certainly other pieces of youth sports that we're not directly addressing that can potentially contribute to community spread. So what we're not measuring is whether or not there's an increase in cases among fans or among referees, for example. So we have to be particularly mindful that we're also very strongly recommending that risk reduction practices be incorporated for everyone who's affiliated with these activities, whether that means reducing crowd sizes and enforcing distancing among crowds and face mask use off the field. I think these are also really important pieces to ensure that you know, youth sports in general can potentially try and reduce any associated risk not just among the athletes themselves. Before we let you go, just want to kind of get your thoughts on what next steps are. You, you mentioned expanding this study to other uh, other areas and continuing it into winter sports. Uh, is, is there a next step that involves publication in a, uh, a medical journal or a research journal, something like that? Yeah, great question. So, so yes, we are actively expanding these to sort of national samples of of a variety of club sports, as well as uh, a national sample of of high school athletics. Um, The study we did among club soccer this summer that um, has been um, developed and is under review for peer-reviewed publication, and we're in the process of developing the manuscript from the Wisconsin high school data. Uh, The unfortunate reality sometimes is that the, the scientific timeline for 
peer-reviewed publication can be months or even years. Uh, so that may be kind of farther down the road. And it's a, it's a difficult uh, path to take to try and insert information into the conversation. The, the peer review process is obviously very important um, and we will be you know, participating in it as we attempt to publish it, but it, it also runs a very real risk of publishing information long after decisions are made and, and there's value in, in what comes out. So we're trying to toe that line, so to speak, and, and discuss the information that we've generated so far in the context of any limitations that it may have and also how to potentially interpret it. And then down the line, we see it in a, in a peer-reviewed publication, hopefully in the relatively near future. Dr. Andrew Watson has been our guest. Uh, incredible information uh, and additional context to the study that came out. And I just want to close by, by highlighting the conclusion of the, the study. And that was that participation in sports is not associated with, with increased risk of COVID-19 among Wisconsin high school student athletes. Dr. Watson, really appreciate your time today. Uh, incredibly valuable information. And we look forward to continuing to receive and, and review that information as it becomes available on some of the expanded opportunities that you're looking into. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you, Travis. So there you go. It, again, incredibly important information. Uh, in additional information and additional context that Dr. Watson uh, was able to provide and able to share. Um, and, and again, we're, we're looking forward to what is going to come out of this? What additional things are we going, going to learn? Not only is this information is digested, uh, you know, looked at and, and, uh, and things like that, but also, again, the continuing aspect of this study, uh, expanding it to other areas of the country looking at it during different time periods, looking at it uh, for different sports and different um, you know, seasons. Um, that's all incredibly important information is, is everyone determines their level of comfort and, and their level of uh, you know, what they want to do when it comes to return to play, when it comes to getting kids back to sports. Um, we're going to have in the next couple weeks some very significant decisions that have to be made by schools as they look at their winter sports and how they want to handle it. We, are, we already know that there are some schools that are going to be delayed, at least. Madison is uh, delayed un until, I think, Ju uh, January 24th. Sun Prairie, I believe, is January 22nd. Uh, the Big 8 and the Badger Conference have canceled their, their, uh, their official conference seasons. Schools can still schedule competitions if they would like, and I think some of them will. But we don't know what's going to happen um, with, with schools right now. But as we get closer to the start of winter sports, those decisions are going to have to be made. And, and they're going to come hot and heavy, fast and furious, just like those decisions that were made on fall sports uh, back in August and September. Uh, I, I fully anticipate that there will be some teams that do not play this year for winter sports at all. I, I think that is a, a very, very likely and almost certainty at this point. The question is how many of those? Uh, the question is, you know, how many, how many impacts are there going to be uh, for the teams that do play? How, you know, how many games are going to get postponed? How many uh, things are going to be rearranged? And, and if you think the fall sports season was crazy from that perspective, buckle up because it's going to be worse in the winter, I think. Uh, again, not only are there, uh, you know, the 
the possibilities of, of increased risk with the, the sports being indoors and more contact. But you also have the weather to deal with. You know, don't forget that we have a lot of games, dozens and dozens, if not 100 or more games, postponed every year because of weather. And you add in this and, and you add in uh, the other dynamics in play. And it could be a, a long winter. Um in terms of trying to figure things out and make things work. Uh, but we will stay on top of it at Wisports.net, just as we did in fall sports. Um, we're gonna we're, we're in the process of putting together some different things, uh, game-wanted lists for schools that are looking to fill schedules and, and looking to fill opportunities in, in games that get canceled. Uh, we will have a list of canceled games. We'll, we'll uh, keep track of all of that. So stay tuned to Wisports.net. Uh, again, make sure you follow us on Twitter. Follow me at TravisWSN. Follow Mark Miller at Wisports.net. Follow Norbert Durst at Norbert Durst. And uh, get all the lowdown. Get all the information as we gear up for winter sports beginning here in just a few short weeks. That'll do it. We're, uh, we're wrapping things up. And we didn't even talk about anything going on this week with... Uh, you know, a number of the high school sports moving to tournament play or already in tournament play and moving even to the state tournament level. We've had championships uh, contested in, in tennis and girls golf. You've got the state cross country meet this weekend. You've got uh, soccer and volleyball moving through their playoff structure. And we've learned a little bit more about what their state tournaments will look like, where they'll be held at different locations. Um, you know, so a lot going on there. And we're in the second to last. What is that? The the penultimate, is that is that the right word? Uh, week of the high school football season. Week six, you got week seven coming next week, and then a couple of uh, additional opportunities as we talked about. But uh, we're, we're getting there. We're wrapping up the fall sports season. And, you know, no matter what has happened this fall, no matter that, you know, 20 to 30% of teams have, have moved to that alternate spring option, no matter the, the challenges that we've had with games being moved and postponed and reschedules and all, that, uh, all of that, we have to look at this as a success. The fact that we got a season in that many, many schools played, that there were tens, you know, thousands and thousands of games played around the state in, in all the different sports, uh, that is a win. That is a win for the kids. That is a win for fans of high school sports. This has been a Wisports.net podcast. I'm Travis Wilson. We'll see you at a game.